this week on a lively experiment. There's a new number two to join the new number one at the State House. I know that Sabina Matos will help our administration serve all Rhode Islanders as we recover and rebuild from this pandemic. And I'm honored to nominate her for Lieutenant Governor today. And the Providence teachers tell the state, we'd like our school system back. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr. and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, Ted Nisi, politics and business editor for WPRI-TV. Bob Walsh, executive director of the National Education Association, Rhode Island. And Brown University political science professor, Wendy Schiller. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. We have a winner in the Lieutenant Governor Sweepstakes Contest. Governor McKee's choice of Sabina Matos to join him up at the uh, State House set off a huge ripple effect along the Rhode Island political landscape this week from Providence City Hall right up Francis Street to Smith Hill. Uh, if you didn't have a chance to see it, we uh, had it rolled a little tape on the introduction. This is some of what the nominee had to say when Governor McKee introduced her. The state of Rhode Island faces many challenges ahead. Together, we will take the issues that are most important to our residents. Getting vaccines in arm, getting people back to work, and addressing the affordable housing crisis, and helping our small businesses community to get back on their feet and get through this global pandemic. I stand here as the nominee for Lieutenant Governor, but my story begins in the Dominican Republic. My family came to the United States in 1994 to find a better life. I'm looking forward to being your partner and being on your team. Thank you. So of course, as Providence City Council President, her resignation then sets off uh, uh, a replacement there, and then of course it changes the governor's race in 2022. Uh, Ted, your team was all over this yesterday. Just initial thoughts about the choice and what happens going forward. Yeah, you know, it, it seems like a choice that makes a lot of sense uh, for Dan McKee politically. You know, there was, I would say, there was a lot of people thinking that uh, D James Dioso was the front runner to get this before the transition happened, and then. Pretty early in the transition, uh, Diosa's name started to sort of lose altitude, um, and it became clear McKee was looking at a much longer list. And so uh, Matos quickly rose. I mean, she's a municipal leader. We know how strongly Dan McKee feels about municipal leadership. A woman, a Latina. Um, she has a good reputation in Providence as uh, someone who gets things done, someone who's been, you know, at times a uh, person people would go to if they didn't think they were getting heard by the Alors administration, they would go to her over on the council. And 
And as you just said, Jim, it's just fascinating how it scrambles, you know, a whole list of other races. Um, and, you know, actually Bob has said to me in the past that, you know, this is one of the reasons ambitious politicians need plan Bs because, uh, you know, for a Seth magazine or for a Nelly Gorbea, you know, yeah, we all thought for years that potentially you have all these, you have an open governor's race, you know, you have a strong shot. Now you have an incumbent. Uh, hopefully things are on the upswing. Uh, now he has a partner who can maybe give him some more credibility in Providence, which is so important in a Democratic primary. So uh, very interesting. Uh, and there'll be a lot of things to watch coming out of it. Wendy, what do you take out of it? Well, I think uh, Sabina Matos has been a rising star and she's made her mark in Providence. And the question is, does McKee give her more to do? Does he bring her into his decision making? Does he make her more of a partner, even though legally the job specification doesn't require that? You would expect that if he wanted to run as a pseudo team, if she's willing to do that in 2022, particularly in the primary, I think the Latino community we know, as Ted points out in Providence, is a really important voting block for the Democratic primary uh, for all levels of office. So I think this is a question mark in terms of well, where do they go from here and what role does she play? Yeah, Dan McKee has said repeatedly, he told me last summer, he has been pushing for them to run as a ticket, just as Charlie Baker and uh, Lieutenant Governor Polito have. So they might do that de facto, but clearly, I mean, you have to go through a constitutional amendment for that. But that's formidable if you see them as a team, because obviously Raimondo and, and McKee, you know, no love lost there. Bob, your initial thoughts. Yeah, I, uh, as Ted noted, I've been living political plan B since Patrick Kennedy decided to go <laughs> to the congressional seat I had a prior interest in. So, yes, politicians do need a plan B. And I you're not running for governor, are you? Just like you were I, in the uh, last cycle, are you? No immediate plans to run for any elected position. Okay. I'll let you all know first if that changes. Um, I think it's... Uh, analyzed through the political lens of the 2022 gubernatorial election, I think it's a good, uh, great opening gambit for Governor McKee. Now, the next uh, several moves will be interesting. There were four other finalists, and I think it's uh, incumbent upon uh, Governor McKee to uh, figure out how to incorporate the, uh, all of those folks uh, and a lot of the other applicants into his ongoing political strategy. Certainly, Mayor Diosa. Uh, with his uh, prior experience and relationships in municipal government, if he decides to leave Brown, would be, uh, I would assume, welcome in a McKee administration to uh, uh, ride herd over uh, the mayors and town administrators that he already has relationships with. Uh, my friend Lou De Palma, who would have been a terrific choice, uh, knows the budget inside and out, but uh, I would love to see him take on, if he goes into government, take on a role uh, kind of as the uh, straw boss over all computer problems would be a, a heck of a place to start, but he knows HHS. And uh, and uh, Liz uh, Beretta Perrick, obviously, as the Democratic National Committee woman and treasurer of the party and a uh, uh, amazing fundraiser could certainly play a role in a uh, McKee for Governor 22 effort. And Grace Diaz uh, uh, would be a formidable additional ally to already having uh, Sabina Matos on the ticket. So uh, that's the political side. From the governance side, uh, it's up to Dan to show that they can govern as a team. I think that he, uh, Governor McKee will absolutely treat his lieutenant governor the way he wanted to be treated uh, by Gina Raimondo, and he will uh, show Rhode Island that, uh, by example, that uh, it should be a ticketed team. 
and as you point out, Jimmy, we can't do it constitutionally, so it would have to be uh, lead by example, then put it on the ballot and make it uh, law for a future race. Yeah, we're hearing that she's going to be up on stage. We're taping on a Thursday uh, morning uh, this afternoon at the Vets. We'll see whether that happens. Wendy, what about the governor's race? And Seth Magaziner has always been a good fundraiser. Dan McKee, not so much. I wonder if this flips the tables now. I mean, clearly incumbency helps. But as you look at the people lining up for governor, does yesterday's decision change this dynamic at all? Or do you think it's, you know, McKee's got to prove himself in the next year and a half, regardless of who's in the lieutenant governor's seat? Well, at the moment, I don't think Nellie Gorbea and Seth Magazine are going anywhere. Uh, if you pay attention to public events, they each held a public event on Monday night, sort of dueling public events. Uh, you know, anything can happen in administration. You know, things can go really well, and we hope they do. We hope COVID stays under control and the vaccination rate continues to climb as we have worked through some of the initial difficulties with Rhode Island's vaccination program, and that small business and tourism come back to Rhode Island. And so you really have to sort of gauge how well that will go. It will be tied somewhat to the national economy, of course. So if you're looking at the primary and uh, things improve, as you said, steadily, I think McKee becomes more formidable as the months go on. But at the moment, I don't see the two other major contenders and possibly Jorge Alorza, but I think this may change that dynamic most of all compared to Nelly Gorbea and Seth Magaziner. But I think they're still in it and they're still you know, shoring up their own political fortunes. And remember, we could have redistricting, we could have one congressional seat and I wouldn't be surprised, you know, we talk about the langevin Cicilline match, I wouldn't be surprised if a few other people jump into that in the Democratic primary if we get down to one seat. And that will be a new uh, wrinkle in our political dynamic. I've done this with every panel since McKee has taken over as governor. Let's go around the horn, as I like to say quickly. Ted, let's begin with you. Quick impressions about McKee, how he's done the first month, maybe differences from Raimondo, and maybe some of what you think he may need to do that he's not doing. I have to say I haven't been particularly surprised. It's been kind of what I expected, having covered Dan McKee for quite a number of years. Um a much more, I would say, down-to-earth uh, governorship. You know, Gina Raimondo, there's a reason she's the Commerce Secretary now, right? She always had um, ambitions that were unusually high. She also really <laughs> had a reason to have them since she is now the Commerce Secretary. And I think also uh, Gina Raimondo and her team, you know, they didn't always leave a lot of room for others to be center stage with them, right? And Dan McKee is clearly much more comfortable with other elected officials, um, you know, maybe further down the rungs in state level politics being on stage. But I think, you know, I think he's, they had some real bumps initially communications wise that the reporters noticed. I think they've, they've realized that they needed, you know, some more seasoned folks around and they've, they've worked on that. But I think in the end, it's just going to come down to, as, as Wendy said, you know, how does he handle the vaccines? How, does he open the economy in a way that, you know, gets it open as quickly as possible, but as safely as possible? And then how does the economy do overall? I mean, the amount of stimulus coming out is so extraordinary that, you know, frankly, Dan McKee, you know, he, he ought to be able to become quite popular. And if he doesn't, he and his team are going to have to look inward because they've been dealt a great hand. Bob, initial impressions? Yeah, I think let me pick up where Ted left off. Uh, Governor McKee has been dealt a great hand. There's one area I have a disagreement with him on that we'll get to later in the show, but I disagree <laughs> with all of them. I haven't heard any potential gubernatorial candidate call me up and say, I'm on your side on the, on the charter issue. Uh, but setting that aside, 
Dan, uh, I think in an earlier interview on the show, I compared his style to the Joe Garrahee Link Common style, and I heard in a subsequent interview the governor himself compare his style to uh, uh, Governor Garrahee and Governor Ammon. So I think Bob, we were... you went through every governor going back to about eighteen hundred. So yeah, like, yeah, try not to do I that this know. week. I gave you the whole litany of uh, of how uh, how the He's really modeling himself on Nicholas Cook, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we, we could go back all the way, but uh, I think that uh, from a personal level, organizational level, he has been open, accessible. His folks have been open and accessible. Uh, I think uh, for any new administration, there are always going to be some bumps uh, along the way, dealing with uh, uh, you, uh, Jim, and Ted, and uh, the colleagues in the media, but those things usually sort themselves out. Um, and I think that it uh, it does, it shakes up the field. I think that uh, while we have uh, both Nellie and Seth who have acquitted themselves uh, remarkably well in their respective statewide positions, there's a new player in town who's got the bully pulpit and can be on TV every week. So it's going to be fascinating to watch it play out uh, uh, through the cycle. And as Wendy correctly points out, there may be a few other players available depending on what happens with uh, redistricting and the census, and I do believe we're going to lose a congressional seat. Wendy, first impressions? Well, I think he's you know, trying to portray himself as a coalition builder. When you come from a locally elected office like mayor, rather than entering politics as state treasurer from a statewide perspective, you realize that you have got to get the buy-in of the people who implement your policies or implement your plan. And he seems to be somebody who naturally seeks that. Uh, that's what it seems to be. How he adapts to the changing nature of the Democratic Party in Rhode Island, which has changed faster, I think, than a lot of people think, uh, not only demographically and ethnically, but in terms of policy, not just going left, but sort of the things that people want to see happen, how he um, can be flexible with that element of the party. And that's the question mark about what Sabina Matos brings to his council. I think that's going to be a really important thing, getting into the real dynamics of getting the vote out and getting people to side with you in the primary a year from now. So he has a year to do that. And his instinct is to build coalitions. And if he sticks with that instinct, you know, that bodes well for him. I don't One thing I've noticed in recent, the last couple cycles, uh, both in Rhode Island and Massachusetts is, you know, the, the Democrats who aren't as thrown by the Twitter left, you know, the very vocal folks on Twitter who may be, you know, have a megaphone, they may get attention, but they don't always represent the broad Democratic electorate. Um, you know, you think of Joe Biden, he was never going to win a primary on Twitter, but he's the president of the United States now, right? Gina Raimondo always says she should have gotten creamed based on how she was getting treated on Twitter compared with Matt Brown, and she won that easily. So, you know, Dan McKee's never been beloved by that part of the party. So I think he will have an easier time um, sort of shrugging that off, you know, as, as he did in 2018 when he had to beat Aaron Regenberg. So um, that's another interesting dynamic, I think, for him as he navigates, as Wendy says, a changing Democratic Party. The uh, Providence Teachers Union this week told the uh, state we would like our district back. We want to take it back from the state and have city control. Uh, Mayor Lorza and the uh, Ed Commissioner on Helica, Fonte Green, uh, basically dismissed that. R uh, Bob, I know this is not your uh, union, it's the AFT, but uh, since you wear the union hat. And so the issue with the Providence teachers and then the whole charter school issue with McKee, there's a lot going on in the school and the union world right now. W were you surprised by AFT making that request at this juncture so short into the, the state's tenure? Well, it's kind of long into the state's tenure because they've been at the bargaining table for over a year. Uh, 
I disagree with the state's approach to how they've handled this. I think that, you know, as someone who's been a professional negotiator for almost 30 years, it was probably a mistake for the commissioner to insert herself directly in collective bargaining with the teachers. Uh, one, it distracted her from the other 38 cities and towns. And two, it gave no place for the superintendent to go to check, uh, so to speak, since there was a takeover. I, I would not have handled it that way. And, you know, the stories I hear, of course, that there was a higher level of acrimony and hostility. And, and one of the things that happened was just a, a rookie mistake, because I don't know if the commissioners ever negotiated uh, contracts before. Uh, but when you say, oh, the teachers agree with me, it's the union that doesn't, there is a predictable result. And the predictable result was a vote of no confidence, where over 1,600 of the 1,900 teachers voted overwhelmingly no confidence. What they were saying is, we are united, we are sticking together, we trust our leadership. And, and you just don't, I, I get it, if you've never done it before, that, you know, you're, you might even be surprised by how collective bargaining works. That's the one area under the law where people sit at the table as equals. And it obscured the underlying message. You know, the teachers in Providence are no different than the teachers I represent throughout the, throughout the state. They care about the kids. They want good outcomes. They want the resources to achieve good outcomes. And, um, and that's separate from the charter issue, but it's equally difficult uh, when that debate is going on. Uh, and it, it puts the Department of Education in a fascinating role because they are simultaneously saying, you know, we want to make changes in Providence and we want to continue to increase a, a parallel system of schools in Providence at the same time. So I don't, uh, the messages kind of come in conflict for each other. And for those of us who are rooting for positive outcomes so everyone can get back to business, even independent of the pandemic, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and, what, and, and Wendy, the parents look at this and they think time keeps going. Time is going, what's happening here? And they just want to get something resolved and have the system move forward. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a national moment for unions. Obviously, Bob can uh, chime in. Biden has sort of described himself as a union guy. He's trying to make some moves that will shore up uh, industries that employ private union workers. So he's, you know, sort of shining the spotlight on unions right now. You know, I think for the other voters, people who will determine who goes to state legislature, who, you know, obviously becomes governor again, becomes mayor, you know, this, the battle is also not as well defined in the general public as I think it could be on either side. You know, when the school takeover came out, well, it's failing, you're failing the students, the state has to take it over. But then, so why? What has the state done differently? What is the state going to do differently? What is it that the Providence didn't do well? You know, what are the teachers unions actually asking for in Providence clearly? I think to the average person who's sort of struggling with COVID and the economy, this battle is, is still insider. But I think the problem for McKee and the problem, you know, generally speaking is, once once kids go back to school, you know, for in school, right, in uh, across the state completely in September, as we hope that they do, you know, then the spotlight shines on schools again. So I think that's the issue now, you know, with trying to figure out what the actual end game political impact will be of this conflict. Yeah, and I think oh, the, the hearing last night on the charter bill did give us some insight into Providence and urban core communities. And, and there was a lot of heartbreaking testimony that both sides, mine included, have to do a lot of self-reflection on. But when one of the parents said they don't need school resource officers 
in charter schools because charter schools are safe. You know, that, that just breaks you because it's not the teachers that don't make them safe. And, and you come to the conclusion there are some parents who are trying to get out of our traditional, get their students, their children out of the traditional public schools because they don't think their kids are safe there. And that's, that shows a systemic problem that's got nothing to do with labor management relations. And it shows, I think the, the motto or the slogan of the current pro-charter movement is uh, we've waited long enough or stop the wait or something. Well, let's stop the wait. Let's get the resources we need into the traditional public schools. Charters were supposed to be role models, laboratories, showing what works. And if you figure out what works, it is incumbent upon you to make sure every public school student in the state can avail themselves to that. So part of it is the wrong debate. You know, I don't, I don't, I, we don't unilaterally oppose charters. I have friends that work in charters, friends that manage charters and friends that send their kids to charters. And I, I never begrudge, you know, they're hardworking teachers and administrators and students, just like in the traditional public schools. But Rhode Island has to confront the question, when, when is it enough? When have we learned enough in these laboratory experiments that have been going on for 25 years that we can say, this works, let's make sure everyone can take advantage of it. That's the real debate. But, you know, when, when a son hires lobbyists and PR agents and does, does mailings, you say, wow, wow, that's, that's a different dynamic. Yeah, than- Bob, Bob let, me, let me let Ted jump in. Yeah, the union's never done that. Go ahead, Ted. <laughs> um, you know, I just think, you know, in the end, why did the Providence schools get taken over? Because the evidence pointed to a lot of kids getting failed in our largest school districts. And so, you know, fundamentally, that's the question. If it's not a school, ta- if it's not a takeover, if it's giving the district back, is anything going to change? And what is going to change? And how does it change? These are massive, very hard questions. <laughs> that's part of why this hasn't gone, maybe as people hope, this is just really hard to figure out, you know, how to turn around an urban district that's had problems for a long time. The other thing I just say is I do wonder to what extent COVID is part of the story here. I mean, you know, you had the takeover put in place and then within months, you know, Governor Raimondo, who was pretty passionate about the Providence Schools effort, is spending all her time on an unexpected global pandemic. Ride is having to overnight reinvent how K-12 public education is conducted in Rhode Island. Um, so, you know, I, I I just wonder if maybe there was a bit more bandwidth both at the governor's office and at Ride, if at least it wouldn't feel like it had dragged on so far with, with nothing much happening. Now, again, there would still be bargaining issues. Uh, you know, it, it would still probably be contentious. But, you know, I think we all know how we've been distracted from what we were worrying about before COVID in our own lives. I have to think some of that dynamics in play here, too. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Ted. I think COVID has been, you know, an additional layer. And then the distraction of the governor leaving to go to Washington became a layer on top of the layer. Uh, but, but it really ultimately comes down to a very simple equation. If you think charters in province are doing something better, then figure out what the secret sauce is and make sure the traditional public schools have it. I, I've talked on the show in the past, I, I don't represent Providence, but we've had a long-standing relationship with the debate school, which by all accounts, one of the poorest schools in the state, is highly functional. And I can tell you some of the secret sauce. They've only had two administrators in the 30 years I've been associated with them, You know, two different principals. Uh, the teachers go, they stay there, they work hard, the community's involved, You know, the local uh, firehouse, gets involved in, in helping the kids in the schools. The, you know, the local police know 
who the who the kids and, are. And there's parental involvement. Just to jump in, I mean, I think yeah, full There's parental involvement, and there are real pressures on a lot of the families that send their kids to public school rather than public public school, not public charter school. Right? We have housing difficulties, affordable housing difficulties, economic difficulties, social stresses. We don't have, you know, we have under Trump, we had, you know, so workfare requirements for food stamps, although not necessarily in Rhode Island. You know, you've got real pressures that are associated with poverty, with single-headed households that really stress a family. So the energy and the bandwidth of that family to be involved in their child's education is diminished. And because it's diminished, you know, they don't maybe have the same wherewithal or the same time and energy that they can devote as charter school parents. So we know this from some research about what it, what incentivizes people to send their kids to charter schools. So I think Bob's correct in that if we don't fix a lot of the other situations that, that affect the families that send their kids to public school, you're not going to fix the public schools. You know, they're not an, on an island. The, the issues that plague a lot of the performance that we see in students come from things that are not controlled by teachers and not controlled by the schools per se. So it's got to be a more holistic approach. And I don't, I don't hear that rhetoric now. And maybe, maybe the teachers' union is saying that rhetoric. Maybe they're saying that, and I'm not, I'm not hearing it. But it's really important that it can't just be solved in and of itself on its own. All right, guys, uh, we have just three minutes left. I'm going to go to outrageous the uh, charter school and the Providence teachers to be continued. Thank you for that discussion, Ted. Let's begin with you, and please keep it tight and bright, as we like to say. Mine, I didn't have a doubt what I would say, which was the ridiculous. Lack of transparency around the Providence budget. Uh, last night, my poor colleague Steph Machado does this story. Sometimes our City Hall reporter, after covering Sabina Montos all day, suddenly found out they were going to pass the budget at a finance committee, five hundred million plus dollars, without releasing it. Without there is no copy available. There was not last night. I have not checked this morning for the public to look at. You know, I I just I don't. I'm sure they have their reasons, but I I as a reporter, I just can't abide by that. I think release even if you're releasing it right before the vote at least have it out before you vote all right wendy outrage or kudo um the inclination to turn to raising taxes every time uh politicians want to spend money and obviously we have big deficits at the federal level and maybe the, the rhode island deficit will come down a little bit because of the federal subsidies that they may be able to take from the COVID package but you know why it's automatic that you want to immediately raise taxes to pay for things. Let's figure out if the government's spending money efficiently, and let's figure out if there's any ways to cut wasteful spending, which you know will come a long way, and then talk about very specific targeted tax cuts on the corporations and individuals that can best afford it, and make sure that that definition best afford it really meets reality. All right, Bob, you have a monumental task. You get the last minute one minute, Mr. Walsh, go ahead. Well, I will move quickly. A couple of other education issues, not shockingly. Uh, one small one that Linda Borg wrote a story about, but it's really, really important. There are 13 teachers in the state that work out of the Sherlock Center, not ones that I represent, that work with blind and visually impaired students, and they are dispatched to 33 school districts in the state. And they laid them all off, and they said, oh, we're going to go out for bids and see if you know we can basically privatize this. These folks have been working uh, longer than I've been in this business, and that program's been working, and it's really, really effective. Uh, the students who are blind and are visually impaired and want to stay in their school districts uh, work directly with these folks, and it's and it's something that works, and, and we shouldn't be messing with something that works. So, and you know, that's the small one from Ride, and the big one from Ride is why the heck are we doing the Ride Cast test next week 
when we can't find 4,500 students at all, we've got another 20,000 with spotty attendance, and they're demanding that the RICAST test be given in person. So if you're a student who's been distance learning the entire time, you're told you have to show up in school. And this yeah, they is might not know where the building is at this point. Well, Bob. and this is something where I'm in full alignment with the charter schools on. I, I, I was talking to some of their leadership folks over the last couple of days and said, this makes no sense. The government. Bob, got, but, yeah, I got I got I got to hold you. But folks, it's not over. We're going to do our special online bonus segment, Lively Extra. So join Bob Walsh. And Wendy Scheller and Ted Nisi, thank you for this part of the show. Folks, go to ripbs.org slash lively. We'll continue the discussion. For the rest of you, come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS.